0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I was taking a walk yesterday in the God's Acre Moravian Cemetery in downtown Bethlehem, and I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before, which is a single white large tombstone laying right in the middle of the path. And it's the grave of Juliana Nitschmann. And it forces you to walk around it, to, to walk through the cemetery. But unlike most of the memorials in God's Acre, if you've ever been there, most of them just have the dates and the name and maybe the occupation of the person there. But Juliana's has a lot more. So I want to read you what it says. It says, "...in hope of a glorious resurrection were laid to rest February 24, 1751, on this spot, then the center of the cemetery, the mortal remains of Juliana Nitschmann, whose maiden name was Haberland, wife of Bishop John Nitschmann and a distinguished deaconess of the church. She was born in Schoenau in Moravia, Moravia July 12, 1712 a lineal descendant of faithful members of the Brethren, ancient Brethren's Unity, which was the, the original name for the Moravian Church, the daughter of fearless confessors. Now listen to this. Amidst bonds and imprisonment of the pure gospel of Christ, fleeing for conscience' sake to Herndhut in Saxony, she served with singleness of heart her God and the church in Germany, England, and America, and died on the 22nd of February, 1751. I'd never read that inscription before, but as I stopped to read it, it just absolutely arrested me. And I realized Juliana, because of those dates, and and as I read more of her story online, she was at the center of what we talk about when we talk about the Moravian revival, that beginning of 100 years of unity, of prayer, of missions, she was there at the start. And actually, she was one of the, the people, one of the young women that was part of that first initial group in Hut that covenanted together to be fully consecrated to serving Jesus, no matter what that would mean for their lives. She was there. She was right at the center of it. And as I read that inscription, to me, it seemed like the perfect segue into a series that we're starting today. on the book of 1 Peter. Because one of the things that you see about her life is that her faithfulness to Jesus led her to being exiled from her homeland at a young age. And for her whole life, she served the Lord in all different places around the world, but she remained in exile for the rest of her life. And on her tombstone, it reads, she was buried in hope of a glorious resurrection. So we've been in this season... Of prayer and talking about prayer. We've had a conference on prayer, and, and I felt as we were starting a new series right now that that season is not over. God's got a lot more for us to do with prayer, and so I don't see this really as the start of something new. I see it as a continuation with, with a slightly different emphasis. And by the way, I'll plug our Wednesday night prayer meeting. Let us pray. We're doing a totally new format. It's going to be full of praise and worship. It's going to be Fun To my shame, I have to say, this is the first week I found myself saying, I'm really excited for this prayer meeting. <laughs> now that's, you know, that's not something a pastor should say, but I'm being honest with you guys. So come out for that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a lot of fun. But here's the thing. Okay, so we're continuing with prayer, but the question I think we're getting into now as we start a new series is, how do we not just be a people that pray, but become a people of prayer. A people of prayer such that we can live radically like the Moravians, like the early church, like many other Christian communities throughout history that have been a people of prayer and God has used to impact their world. What you see in those communities and the premise of this series that we're getting into right now is this. To know how to act you must first know who we are. To know how to act, I and you must know who we are. Psychologists tell us that a person's group identity is what tells them how to behave in any given moment. And we went into that a little bit in our previous series on joy. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen, especially to the the last message in that where I talk about that. But we're going to explore that more in detail as we look at the book of 1 Peter. Now, a lot of times, so we're talking about identity, but I think most of the time when we talk about identity, because we're in an individualistic culture, when we talk about identity, we almost exclusively mean my identity, my individual identity. And very rarely do we talk about who we are, as the people of God, we rarely talk about the group identity. So, we talk a lot about who you are in Christ as an individual, but, but here's the thing. If you read the statistics, if you look at the studies by Barna and Pew and all these different research groups, if the statistics are true, it's very common in the United States to personally call yourself a Christian even a born-again Christian, but to live a life that is behaviorally identical to people that would not call themselves Christians. And it's very common. Why is it that that's so common? Now, that's, I'm sure, very complex, but I think one part that we're going to focus in on here is that A big part of the problem is this, that even if we know who we are individually in Christ, if we lack a clear sense of who we are, if we lack a clear sense of group identity, it's the group identity, not your individual identity, that actually informs you how to behave. It's the group identity that tells you this is how a Christian should act in this situation. And when you don't have a clear sense of the group identity... When you're in your day-to-day life, what it means is you don't actually know how to behave. You don't know how to behave any differently. And so, we might individually call ourselves Christians, but if we don't have that group identity, then our cultural surroundings end up forming our basic sense of what's right and wrong, our basic sense of values, and it impacts how we act. And so, the result is that we as a people of God, we begin to lose our identity, we begin to lose our distinctiveness because we don't have a clear sense of that group sense of self. So the book of 1 Peter, it's basically written, it's written for lots of things, but the thing that we're going to focus on here is it's written to say, no, this is how we act because this is who we are. This is who we are. We are. And so, what we see in this letter, the Apostle Peter, he's Jesus' right hand man. And what we see him doing, he's writing to not just one church like Paul usually did, but he's writing to a group of churches. He's writing to a region of churches. This group of letters is often called the, the, the pastoral letters because they're, they're to various churches. And so, what you see him doing as an apostle, as a father of the church, is instilling a group identity. In the early church. The early church that found itself in the middle of a hostile, pagan, Roman empire, suffering, being persecuted, and asking itself, how should we behave in this setting? How should we behave? And it was that group identity that informed who they were and how they lived. And what you see in the history of the early church is that within 300 years, Christians went from being a persecuted minority to the Roman Empire itself acknowledging Christ as Lord. And so, what does this have to say to us? Well, this is what our season, this is what our series is going to be on. How is our identity different? And how are we to live in light of that identity? Now, there's lots of different books that we could choose to look on that theme, but I think 1 Peter really has a lot to say to us for our particular moment, and we're going to see over the next seven weeks, seven things that Peter says about who we are as the people of God, the identity, the group identity of the people that belong to Jesus. This is, okay, seven statements. I'm going to read them, and then week by week, we're going to delve into them, okay? So number one, we rejoice because we are hopeful, We obey because we are a holy people. We mature because we are a childlike people. We submit because we are a people of honor. We suffer well because we are a people of righteousness. We steward well because we are a selfless people. And we serve because we are a people of humility. We're going to delve into each of those as we go through these weeks. But today, we're going to be looking at a people of hope. And I pray that as we, as we get into this, I pray that the Holy Spirit, my prayer in this series is that the Holy Spirit would begin to instill in us a clear sense of group identity, of who we are, that he would use to fashion us into a radical people, a people of prayer that he can use to impact our world. So let's begin reading from the opening verses of 1 Peter. So 1 Peter, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Those are regions of what would today be the the country of Turkey. Verse 2, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, you see the entire Trinity involved, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Those are the words that reminded me of Juliana Nitschmann's tombstone. In the hope of a glorious resurrection. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept or guarded in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ though you have not seen him you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls so this is this is one of these books one of these sentences that needs a lot of unpacking because what you find in in in, in this letter and many of Paul's letters is that there were these huge run-on sentences that your English teacher would never let you get away with. <laughs> but, so we're going to unpack this a little bit, all right? Peter, he's writing to Gentile, non-Jewish Christians within the Roman Empire. So this is probably in the, the decade of the, the 60s of the first century. And they were facing persecution, They were facing danger. They were facing constant misunderstanding by their neighbors. And here's the the mind-blowing thing. If you you track the growth of the church, so he's writing in the 60s, by the end of the first century, there were probably about 20,000 Christians, which is pretty amazing. You know, that's, that's pretty exponential growth. But within the first 200 years, by the start of the fourth century, there were probably 20 million Christians in the Roman Empire. 20 million Christians. So that's a growth rate of 50% per decade. That's what we call exponential growth. And so, as you, as you track that history, soon after, in the, the third and fourth centuries, the Roman Empire ad- adopted Christianity as a state religion. And then eventually it became the state religion. And so, Christians that were once a persecuted minority, now they're no longer suffering state persecution. And in fact, Christians were welcomed into the establishment and they became the dominant force politically. And so that gave way to the era that that historians call Christendom. Now we think about the Moravians. I love history, so, you know, I, I, I won't go into too much detail. But when we turn back to the Moravians, you have to bear in mind, so someone like Juliana Nitschmann that whole thing that, that founded Bethlehem and, and, and Nazareth and, and what's now Emmaus, all those little towns around us, we have to bear in mind, all of that happened within the era of Christendom, All right. So what I mean by that is all the colonial powers, Britain, France, Germany, Holland, all the colonial European powers were all, they all had state churches. They were all, in inverted commas, Christian nations by law, all right? And yet the Moravians lived radically differently from what was the norm even within those Christian nations, right? So while the European colonial powers were busy building empire, they were busy propagating race-based slavery, they were busy colonizing the world for the sake of wealth, what were the Moravians doing? They were going to the ends of the earth for the sake of the gospel. They were working as entire communities to support frontier missionaries, And guess what? They were redeeming slaves out of slavery and intermarrying with them. They were being buried side by side with with equal gravestones with native peoples that the colonial powers struggled to even call human. They were living out the radical implications of the gospel. But here's the thing. In a time when everyone thought that they were Christians, They were living like the early church, and so what I think that illustrates for us—the reason I, I that that heritage in the Moravians is so precious—is that what it shows us is that to follow Jesus, it requires us to be countercultural, even if our culture thinks of itself as Christian. I need to say that one more time because I, I think only Johnny got it. All right. <laughs> to follow Jesus requires us to be countercultural even in a culture that proclaims itself to be Christian. And the reason is this. This is what Peter tells us. The first thing he tells us, even in, his, in his, the address to his letter, is that followers of Jesus are always Exiles. Followers of Jesus, if they're to be authentic, are always exiles. So here's the thing. Peter was writing to a pre-Christian, he was writing to Christians within a pre-Christian culture, all right? It was obvious to the Romans that Christians were different. The Moravians, they were working within a Christendom culture, where it was assumed that if you were part of the European empire that you were a Christian by nature of where your citizenship was. But today, we live in a quite different situation. We live in what you could call a a, a self-consciously post-Christian culture. And what I mean by that is this. It's a culture that increasingly defines itself As against something, as after something. It's a culture that says, yeah, we've been there, we've done that, and we're done with it. And so the place that the Moravians came to 250 years ago and more as a mission field, guess what? It's still a mission field. And increasingly, even within a place that was once reached generations ago, increasingly there are more and more people that have no idea what the story of the gospel is. But here's the thing. They think that they do. They think that they do know it and that they've rejected it. Thank you very much. So, in a pre-Christian culture, the job of the church is to proclaim the gospel, to to make it understood, to translate it into words that they can understand, and and in a Christendom culture, the job of the church is largely to remind the people what they already know but they're not being faithful to, to draw them back, a little bit like the the, the prophets of Israel did to Israel. They weren't telling them the good news of God's love for the first time. They were reminding them, come back, come back to your first love, but in a post Christian culture, we're once again in a missional setting, but we're in a place that the church has never found itself before. Because how do you teach someone what they think they already know? That's the challenge that faces The church in our part of the world, I'm not generalizing to the whole world because there's many unreached people groups, and there's many places where Christians find find themselves in pre-Christian or even still in some pockets Christendom areas, but we find ourselves in this part of the world in that kind of setting, a culture that thinks it knows what the gospel is but has consciously turned away from it. And so what I'm telling you is just as the Moravians had to show their Christendom culture that it wasn't being true to the gospel, so we are in the position where we need to demonstrate to our culture that the gospel that has become known as outdated and maybe even dangerous to society, that it's actually good news. That it's actually still good news. And even more than that, that it fulfills the deepest desires of the human heart. And so... What I want to ask through the course of this series is how was it that the Moravians were able to live so radically, so differently than the culture around them, even though that culture considered itself to be Christian? How did they do that, not only on the level of radical individuals and maybe even families, how did they do that on the level of whole communities? Communities, and not just in one place, in lots of places throughout the world. Well, I think part of how that happened was the central experience that they had of being exiled. They began as a people exiled from their native lands. They were fleeing for sake of conscience, as Juliana Nitschmann did. And because they were exiled... They were in a privileged position to learn what the Bible teaches, that Jesus' followers are always exiles. And so they learned what is true spiritually, experientially, also. And because of that, because that was foundational to who they thought themselves to be as a community, they were able to develop this distinct group identity that shaped their values and their lifestyle in a radical way. And so they lived in a very different way than their colonial neighbors. And so, what I'm trying to say to you all is if we as Christians are to live in such a way that our post Christian world, once again sees the beauty and desirability of Jesus, we also need a strong sense of group identity. We need that. And the first and foremost aspect of that group identity, Peter says, is this. And this is our, <clears throat> the overarching topic for today. He says, we are people of a living hope. This is foundational to who we are. And it's a theme that runs all the way through this letter, this theme of a living hope. This is who we are. We are the people who've been born again into a living hope. Well, what's the difference, Ian, between a regular hope and a living hope? And because I wasn't sure, I looked up Grubby's handy-dandy definition If you're new here, Grubby is our senior pastor emeritus, and we have a compendium of definitions that he's given over the years, and it's uh, conveniently located on Dropbox, and I can look it up. So there's several definitions of hope in the uh, GHDD dictionary, and the one that I like best was, hope is my consistent expectation that every dilemma of life will find its answer in the power of the resurrection. Hope is my consistent expectation that every dilemma of life will find its answer in the power of the resurrection. And so the difference between a regular hope and a living hope is that we don't hope in something, we hope in someone who is alive. It's a living hope because he, Jesus, is living. And so we're not only hoping in a a past, former moral example or a great prophet, we're hoping in one who is living and breathing and alive and well, physically human at the sight of the Father. He is our living hope. And so, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, that living hope that's based in his resurrection and it looks forward to our resurrection, that is the foundation of our entire faith. If anyone wants to tell you, well, Christianity can't be true because you can't prove it to be false. You say yes, you can. If it could be proven that the resurrection did not happen, the whole thing collapses. It's worthless. Paul says it's a comp- it's a complete vanity. And so the living hope of Jesus and his resurrection underpins everything else we see in this letter. And so hope is not just positive thinking. It's not just manifesting what you want into reality. It's a fixed, living, breathing person. And because Jesus is, we can have a consistent expectation that every dilemma of life will find its answer in the resurrection power that he gives us. And so, Peter says, we're exiles, yes, and we're also reborn. And there's an inconvenient truth to both of those things, because here's my next point. Neither birth nor exile are ever pain-free. We're reborn, we're born again, but just like there was pain in your first birth, not so much for you, <laughs> although, you know, squeezing your head through there, it's got to it's hurt, There's pain in your new birth as well. And that's a, a side of the good news that we don't often talk about, that there's a cost to it as well. Just as there's a cost to being in exile. So the word exile can also be translated resident alien. For most of my life growing up in Europe, I lived as a resident alien in a few different countries. And now, my wife and my daughters get to have the same experience. They're here on green cards as, and it says, resident alien on the card. <laughs> and so, when you're a resident alien, it, it's, it's not like being a tourist, because a tourist just passes through and they're like, oh, wow. You're rooted there, you live there, right? You're engaged in the culture, you're not, you're not just passing through, you're rooted. And yet, at the same time, you have an awareness that you're never fully home. It's part of the experience. You're never fully home. My grandmother was a World War II war bride, married an American GI, moved to the U.S. at 19 years old, I think. And so she died when she was 92. She was here over 70 years. Lived here her whole adult life. Do you think she still missed things? She did. She did. She still missed little things, people, places. And sometimes when you're in another country and you kind of say, oh, I, I, you know, I miss home, well, people, people are quick to say, well, this is home now. And it is, and it isn't. There's a here and yes and now, and there's, a, there's people and places and things that are irreplaceable. And so... When you're a resident alien in a place, part of what you learn is that you can't talk about it all the time with the, your neighbors because they don't understand. And you also can't hold it against them because they can't understand. They've, they haven't experienced those things. And so here's the thing. When you're a Christian and Paul, uh, Peter says you're an exile, you're a resident alien in this world, it means you should expect that part of your heart is not located here. It's located with God. It's located in our eternal home, in the presence of Jesus. And so you should expect that. And at the same time, you can't fault your neighbors for not having the same values, for not missing the same things as you do because they can't get it. They haven't had that experience until they meet Jesus, until they have felt that longing for home to be with him. Not only do they not get it, they cannot get it. And so, we should expect that there should be a little bit of friction between where we are and where our hearts find home, our full, true sense of home. And so, There's a little bit of friction between your identity as a citizen of heaven and being a citizen of wherever you live. You should expect that at some point, those things actually, there's actually a little bit of friction there. There's at some point, just as there was pain and friction in your birth, there's pain and friction in your exile that at some point will cause you to have to make different kinds of decisions than your neighbors. Different kinds of things that you and your family, because this is who we are, you're going to choose different things. And there will be a cost attached. You're going to choose to spend your Sunday mornings a certain way. When there's a cost to your kids and they can't join in in that Sunday soccer league. thank Hopefully, God willing, you can find one that's in the afternoon. But what happens when the only one is Sunday morning, right? Smack dab in the time where God calls us together to worship. Well, that's a tough call as a parent. I don't want, to, I don't want my kids to miss out, right? And I'm not, I'm not imposing that on you. But what I'm saying is, there are going to be moments, and we often think of the big stands, you know, like, well, if, if they come, they're going to put me in jail, or they're going to kill me for my faith. or I'm going to make a stand for my faith. And God willing, we would. But People say it's, it's often harder to live for something than to die for something. <laughs> it's harder to live for my wife every day than it would be to, you know, throw myself in the way of the bus, you know, <laughs> to save her. That's what I meant. There will be times where because this isn't fully our home, we're going to have to make different decisions because this is who we are and this is what we do as God's people. And so, you know, it's a question for you to consider. When was the last time you felt that friction? Because you begin to realize, well, if I never feel friction between the decisions that I make because I'm part of the people of God versus the decisions I make because I'm part of the United States of America or England or, Spain or wherever it is, right? Then, you, then you, you begin to realize, maybe I'm a little bit too comfortable What is it that needs to shift in my desire for Jesus that is going to reorient the decisions I make daily? Now, that's a little bit of a hard message, but I hope you can hear that because because we're in that setting, because the world around us, the culture around us no longer holds to the same assumptions about some of the basic things that God says is true of you if you're a child of God. And so if that's true and I'm living that way, I should expect that once in a while, I'm going to have to make very different kinds of decisions with my life and my family and my kids. So, now, as I'm heading into the next point here, (laughs) speaking from experience as someone who's been in exile and been a resident alien, it, it can be a little bit depressing if you just stay there right? If you're constantly aware and you just stay in the place of, I don't fit in here, I don't belong here, I'm an alien, whoa, I'm an alien, it can be pretty depressing. So what Peter does is he he wants to inject God's perspective into that, all right? And so the next thing he says is, yes, we are exiles. Yes, we are people of hope. But what is it that maintains our hope? It's not just that we are constantly pining for our true home or that we're keeping it alive by our rituals and, and by our effort. No, he says this, the next point, we are kept by the power of God. We are guarded by the power of God. And the word guarded there, it's a military term. It's talking about God as an impregnable fortress that is guarding you, that is keeping you. And because of that, nothing that the world can do, and and guess what, not even anything you can do can separate you from your inheritance in Christ. When you're his and you're in his grasp, nothing can separate you from that. And so I like, as one commentary puts it this way, from God's viewpoint, the scatteredness of the exiles, it's his election, God has plucked them out of their paganism to be his own. He has foreknown them. Before they existed, the Father knew and loved them and made them his. God has sent them his spirit to sanctify them. That is precisely to create the distinction between them and the world that causes them so much trouble. So that friction, God has ordained it. He sent his spirit to do that, in fact. And by leading them into a life of obedience to Jesus, sheltered under the forgiveness won by his blood. And so you see the whole trinity involved in the whole process of your Christian life. Since before the beginning of the world, selecting you to belong to God. And so this is who we are. We're a people guarded by God. And so the question is, how does that impact how we live? And we're, in a way, we're going to spend the whole series talking about that. But I want to mention the two things that, we, that come up in this passage. And then if we have time, I want to get you to pray. All right. So, how does it impact our lives, the fact that we are a people of hope? Well, number one, Peter gives two examples. He says, we are a people of hope, therefore, we rejoice no matter what. We did a whole series on joy, so I'm not going to reiterate all of that. But because we are a people with a living hope, Peter says, we're the people that rejoice. I don't know if your mom, when you were a kid, or your dad ever told you, you know, Hey, 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 stop doing that. That's not what we do. I'm saying that a lot these days. (laughs) That's not what we do. No, this is who we are. This is what we do. And so when the world is in despair and in convulsions over politics and war and wealth and the economy and all those things, it's not that we're not concerned, but we are not the people of despair. We are a people of a living And notice that in this passage, the two things coexist. Peter says, you rejoice greatly in this, even though you are, for a time, sad. So he's not saying that the rejoicing gets rid of the sadness. It doesn't deny the sadness, nor does the sadness overcome the rejoicing. They coexist somehow. In the midst of sadness over the state of the world, he says, we are the people that are marked out by rejoicing in the hope that we have. So you can go back and listen to the whole thing on joy, the whole series, but Peter says as we're going through those things, as we're rejoicing in our hope, even in terrible circumstances like his audience were suffering, he says our faith is being tested, and that faith is more precious than gold. Well, how is it, Peter, that faith is more precious than gold? I think I'd rather have the gold. (laughs) It's because he's speaking from a very different System of valuation, right? He's speaking from a different value system. He's saying God prizes faith above everything else. Gold is is kind of worthless to God. Why? God owns everything. It's all his. He's like, yeah, nice yacht. Check out my Galaxy. (laughs) Right? And I don't mean the Samsung tablet, right? (laughs) Check out the universe that is mine, right? Why does God prize faith above everything else? Because faith is the currency of relationship. The deeper your relationship with a person, the greater faith you have in that person. Yeah? The greater amount of trust. And so God in himself is relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally self-giving community of love. So Love is the expression of who God is, which means the greatest thing that he values is faith. It's that trust that emerges when two people love each other. And so perfect trust and love and hope are always what are flowing out of God. That's, I, maybe that's why Paul says, faith, hope, and love, these things endure right? These things remain because they're constantly flowing out of father towards the son and son towards the spirit and spirit towards father and son. It's always flowing. And so the second implication is this. Number one, we are a people of a living hope. Therefore, we rejoice no matter what. And therefore, we set our hearts on God's glory. It's the last thing that Paul, Peter says in this passage. He says, the result of testing of our faith is praise, honor, and glory. And you know what, when I read this, I assumed, probably, if you're like me, probably what you would also assume, that what he's saying is, if you endure, when your faith is tested at the end of your life, your life will result in praise and honor of glory towards God. And that makes sense, and I think that's true, but that's actually not what he's saying. What he's saying is something absolutely mind-blowing that I didn't pick up on until I read the experts who actually know Greek grammar and all that stuff when you follow the logic of this really long sentence and you read all the commentaries, all of them agree on this. Peter's saying, as we place our hope in him and we go through trials and suffering and our faith is tested, it's not just that our lives glorify God. It says that when Jesus is revealed, he will heap praise and honor and glory onto you. You say, Ian, that sounds heretical. God's going to praise me? Well, yes, well done, good and faithful servant. That is a statement of praise. And God will confer, he will lend his glory to us. And we will see with unveiled faces the glory of God. And you know what happened when Moses looked at the glory of God for a split second? What happened to him? He shone with glory so much that the people didn't even want to look at him. What will happen to us when we stand with unveiled faces and we behold the glory of God? His glory will wrap around us. I can't say it better than with the words of C.S. Lewis. (laughs) And I think this sums up this whole message really well. He says, talking about us as exiles, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory, in the sense described, it becomes relevant to our deep desires. For glory... Means good report with God. Acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will at last be opened. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be inside of, the, some, of some door that we've always been on the outside, it's no mere neurotic fancy, but it is the truest index of our real situation. And to be, at last, summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Someday, we shall get in. And so, yes, we are exiles, but we are a people of hope, a living hope that can never fade away. And so, what I want to do, I said that we have this segue between prayer and kind of uh, activating our prayer. So what I want to do right now, I want to invite the band back up, okay? And and Bethlehem, the same for you. What I want us to do, as the the band is going to just quietly play, I want us to, just for a couple minutes, just turn to the people next to you, groups of two or three, and pray together, all right? If there's a point of that message that has somehow touched you, you can pray about that. But no matter who you are, I think we can all pray for a greater identity as the people of living hope. What is something that you've, you realize, i I begun to lose hope in God about that thing. I've become defined more by despair than by being a person of living hope. take a moment to pray about that together. And then meeting leaders, after a couple minutes, you can just bring us back into a final chorus together, and we'll close out our meeting. So, why don't you just just go ahead and do that right now. And I'm going to pray to close the message. Father God, I thank you that you have chosen us from before the beginning of time. You've made us chosen exiles. And we are a people of hope. Lord, transform us that you can impact your world through us as we live out what it means to be a people of living hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.